We know that uh, some of the Jewish folks don't pronounce that, don't say it in reverence to the fact that that's the only name that God really gives himself. That flows really into what we're talking about today because as we utter that word, that name, Allah, what we're ultimately saying is that we're ready to accept God from his own perspective. You know, we talked about this over the summer that God, people gave God a lot of names. But that was really ultimately their version, their understanding, their perspective on who God was. But God really only gave himself that one name, that Yahweh name. And that name is so important that when we utter it, when we say it, it means that we're ready to accept God on his own terms. Meaning that it's not about our perspective of God anymore. It's about God's being God. I am who I am. Yahweh. Allah. And so as Christians, we do utter those words. We do sing it. Not hopefully in a way that is flippant and that means nothing to us, but in a way that we're saying this is us committing to treat God who He is and how He needs to be treated. This is not our perspective. This is not us naming them. This is us connecting to how God named Himself. And that's really cool, and I hope that you think about that and, and pay attention to that. Whenever you hear that word, Allah, or Hallelujah, or Yahweh, that's really what you're saying when you utter those words. Whether you realize it or not, you're accepting God on His own terms and not on yours, which is really what we're talking about today. Um, so, last week I started a series on, um, not a series, sorry, well it was kind of a series, a three week series. Oh, okay, good, yes, um... And it's important just for us to be reminded of these things, of who we are. Because I have no doubt in my mind that some of you are here and you still haven't really caught on to our vision and mission as a church. And I think in some ways, if you don't ever do it, you're just spinning your wheels being here. We are not a church that's just trying to grow for growth's sake. That is not to us a definition of success. Now, I know we get excited at the beginning of the semester when... You know, people are here, but guys, two weeks ago, we had about 60 people meeting in the very front of this room, and that was just as much church and a part of our vision and mission as all of us here together. And when we outgrow this room, if we ever do, that'll be great, and we'll all be so excited. But what's far more important in in that that we just have numbers is that each individual member in our church is a full functioning person who's committed and equipped to do ministry wherever they are, whether that's here or in their workplace, or somewhere else. And that's incredibly important for us. And so you can't be here very long without having people get up in your business. Okay? And so if you don't like that, you like that anonymity, uh, it's fine to be the place for you. Now, you know, when you're first starting off, that's fine. We'll give you some, you know, leeway, and that'll be good. But people are going to know you here. And, and you're going to hopefully be expected to be known. And if that's not your deal, then, you know, I'm, I'm warning you ahead of time. So, last week... We talked about uh, the, you know, not allowing our preferences and passions to enslave our purpose. I know the peace stuff, whatever, who knows. You know, it's just the way I kind of thought about it. So, I'll ask you that question again. Is your, and I'm going to ask you a number of sort of thoughtful, introspective questions this morning. I'm going to have you guys do a short little group thing with each other that's a confession time for us, which we do periodically here. Um, but is your purpose enslaved by your preferences and passion? A lot of us, uh, the answer in any given area of our life might be yes, probably more often than we like to admit. And what I mean by that, by preference, I mentioned four things last time, four C's. Preference, number one, church history. Well, I've always been involved in this kind of church, so I may as well just look for that kind of church. Guys, a lot of us think that's denominationalism, but most people now are denominational. So they look for a church that's non, or 
Most people now are non-denominational. So they look for a church that's non-denominational. Just because you found a church that's non-denominational doesn't mean it's an okay church. It might mean that you, you might have grown up non-denominational, but in your general area and vicinity, it would be better for you to be involved with Baptist church or Catholic church or whatever. I'm sorry, but you know, church history isn't the only indicator of what kind of church you should be involved in. And that's back to that theology problem that we have a lot of times that we think that our knowledge of things should sort of lead and guide and direct where we're at. So we're at a church. Well, man, we're in the right church, but we're not doing anything. But man, at least we're in the right church. What does that even mean? That's a preference we have, which isn't always wrong. Okay? I'm certainly not saying that our preferences and our passions are outright wrong. We've got to deny them. You know, I'm simply saying that when our purpose runs, you know, uh, backseat to our passions and our preferences, we get into a lot of trouble in almost every area of our life, but particularly when it comes to church involvement and where we're going to be involved and what we're going to do. So, church history. Number two is comfort. Uh, when we pick a church based simply on how comfortable we are, whether that's because of our personality, I'm a pretty rational thinker, I'm not incredibly expressive, even though I know it looks like I'm, this is somewhat years of teaching and preaching, being able to kind of be animated, but I'm, I promise you, you asked my wife, who's not here this morning, so I plan on fully uh, saying some things about her that I wouldn't say if she was here. Um, I'm not an expressive person. I have a real tough time getting those things out. So that's what I meant last time when I liked the liturgical form of worship, is you can just kind of be anonymous, you can sort of receive things, it's very sensual in a lot of ways. And, you know, I mean, some of us, that's our preference, right? Maybe you grew up Pentecostal. Maybe the idea of leaving a church experience with just a feeling deep inside of you is really important for you. Well, maybe that's okay, but if that's what drives where you're going to be involved, then I think there are some better ways uh, to make that decision. So we pick where we're comfortable. Convenience. Convenience is a big one now, and, and particularly in the South, because there's so many churches around. We just sort of pick the one that's nearest to us. I think a lot of you are here because of convenience, all right? Now, there's plenty of churches in the Denton area. Well, I don't see any of you, like, really making the decision, should I be involved in Wiley, Denton, you know? No, I realize some of that's just normal. That's okay. That's fine. But we make a lot of decisions based on convenience. The, the fourth one is uh, consumption. We want to consume stuff. We want to be able to use something, get exactly what we want out of it, and then pick up and leave. And a lot of our worship services and churches that I've been to today are, revolve around this consumption mentality. Come in, get an amazing experience, give some money, and leave. The church is prostituting itself when it does that. Uh, that's not okay. That's not good. And again, you know, it's churches that are putting, investing a lot of money into performance and things like that, that's fine. As you grow, you have those resources, it becomes easier, you have more talents in your church. Not a problem. That's great. But if that's the main draw for people, we have a real problem because then we're going to have a whole lot of babies coming in for their five minutes of television and then leaving and not doing anything all week until the next five minutes of feeding that they get the next Sunday. And that's really not what church is about. Well, I'm not going to go through all of those and be really negative, which I have a tendency to do, and talk about how bad those are. That was my only thing. I'm trying to speak, preach positively this morning. Someone came up to me last week and said, I really like your sense of cynicism. And I was like, I thought I preached a really positive sermon. <laughs> that must mean I'm really cynical by nature, so I'm going to really work to be only positive this, uh, this Sunday. Yes. So, 
And then I mentioned passions last week, that that can be a real shaky ground. Uh, a lot of time we equate passion with God-given. You know, God gave me this passion. When in reality it could have been some weird experience we had as a kid that shaped how we think about ourselves. I told you about me being a pilot. You know, how that really didn't go anywhere beyond simply some lady telling me I had pilot's vision. And yet I adopted that. It became a part of my identity. We do this all the time with stuff. That's just us. We're looking for identity. And so we want to try to tag on to anything that gives us some specifically unique version of identity. Sometimes God gives us passions, but I would say the majority of the passions we have that come naturally to us are not God-given. They come from personality. They come from experience. And we've got to test our passions against the rule of, is this something that God has truly made me passionate about? Before I launch off into golf ministry, because I love to play golf, we've got to be more discerning when it comes to really looking at our passions. Because our passions come from a lot of sources, and I think Satan has used that in a lot of Christian churches. The people are passionate, you know? I want to go out and I want to do sex trafficking ministry. Whoa, everyone thinks, man, that's amazing, that's great, we're so proud of you, you know? Well... That person exactly wanted that response. They're not equipped to do sex trafficking ministry. They're not going to be in it for the long haul. They simply did it because it sounded great and it gave them a piece of identity. And in a year when things get tough because sex trafficking ministry is like anything else, there's a whole lot of mundane stuff you got to do before you're able to help people. People aren't asking the question of whether I'm equipped to do this, whether God has led me to do it. I've made the decision simply because it sounds cool and our culture's into it and that makes me feel really good about what I'm doing. And that's okay if you're a baby Christian and that's your best attempt at following God's purpose. But if you're a mature Christian, that is not okay at all. You've got to test these things in your life to make sure that God's really leading you down these paths. And things that seem really exciting, okay, and really uh, impressive often aren't the paths that God is leading us down, at least initially. Okay? I'll just tell you that. Because a lot of Jesus' ministry was not very impressive and was not very exciting. God were to describe, you know, ahead of time all the different things that Jesus is going to do to you. Do you think you'd want to sign up for that ministry? Right? And his disciples had this problem throughout following Jesus. They constantly overlaid their passions and their preferences onto what he was trying to do. And Jesus constantly came back to the purpose he had been given. And that's so, so, so important for us. So the four C's of purpose that I want to try to explain the first two today, and then I'll go over the next two next week. The first two today, a commitment and calling. Yeah? What? What? Huh? What, what? does it look like to like, test your passions and find out if it's God? What are you trying to make me explain myself? I just want to say stuff and then <laughs> move on, you know? I mean, I, goodness gracious, this is awful, you know? I'll explain it today, okay? That, that's the point, is the, You're asking the right question. I love that. That's good. Okay. So, and if you're new around here, anytime you want to interrupt me and ask me a question, that's completely not okay. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) That's absolutely okay, right? This is interactive learning. I'm I'm much more of a teacher than I am a preacher, uh, for better or for worse. And so, you know, you interrupt and want to understand something I'm saying, please do. Okay, so my first question, of course, is, is I'm going to re- reiterate it. Is your purpose enslaved by your preferences and your passions? Uh, the first two C's that we're going to talk about today are commitment and calling. The next two C's we'll talk about next week are community and cooperation. Uh, a lot of these are words that kind of don't mean much to us. And so the whole goal of me uh, preaching on these is to try to kind of do a little bit of teaching and preaching and help you understand 
what it is that I think um, a Christian should really be thinking about and, and living when it comes to these words. So, uh, I don't know if I want to do this activity at the beginning. I think I'll do it at the end. It'll kind of lead us into communion. I, I like that idea better. All right, commitment. First one. Step one, commitment. Uh, this word is, like so many English words, it's become so broad that it kind of means nothing. I think if you were to try to measure commitment, and um, I do research, uh, social survey research, science, uh, sociology, sociological research for churches, okay? I'm employed by uh, a very large um, church organization that basically just does survey research for churches. And one of the ways that they operationalize, to use an academic term, I'm sorry, this variable, meaning that one of the ways they try to test whether someone's commitment is church attendance. Sounds like a really good idea. But in my mind, that's a really terrible way of determining someone's commitment. I mean, that's like the basic stuff. If you can't show up, you're certainly not committed. But even if you do show up three out of four you know, times in a uh, month, you're not a committed person. I mean, you're committed to attendance. Good for you. Who really, like, grew up hoping they would get the attendance award? Right? Okay. <laughs> Sarah did. All right? Okay, we got two people. Good for you guys. You're completely obliterating my analogy right now, right? <laughs> Most of us don't want the attendance award, right? We get that award and we're like, oh, I can't put that one up. Like, didn't like, miss the least amount of days in school. Like, hey, we used to get, like, okay. restaurant days. Okay, oh, I never got even like 10 days in a row. So, you know, I, yeah. Maybe there are great benefits of, you know, the whole attendance thing. But you guys quit trying to, you know, man, I'm still my thunder. You're just like my students, you know? Uh, that's not really a good sign of commitment in my mind, okay? I don't think of that, and particularly for this church. If you want to be a committed Christian and you think the way that you had to do that in our church is by coming three out of four Sundays, no one's going to consider you very committed around here, okay? So go to another church where you'll get an attendance award for uh, attendance because it's not going to work here. I think two things in particular really determine someone's commitment to Jesus. Number one is predictability. We are all predictable in certain behaviors in our life and in our lives. The real question is, where are you predictable? And you can answer this question. You can just list where are areas that if someone looked at my life or if I asked my closest friends, where am I going to be predictable? Another way of looking at this is reliable, but I don't like that word. I like predictability. It sounds more scientific. Where can people pretty much predict my behavior? And then the question becomes, does that behavior look a lot like Jesus or not? Can they predict my behavior and my choices in a way that really looks like Jesus' predictable behavior or not. Because Jesus' behavior in some ways were really predictable. When the disciples tried to derail him off of his mission, he would not budge. One of my favorite stories and one of the saddest stories, I think, from Jesus' ministry is when he preached the Bread of Life sermon, so he's just told everyone to eat him up, Okay? And people are running away because this is too hard. He simply looks at his disciples and asks a question most of us would never ask our close friends. You guys want to leave too? He was ready. His purpose allowed him to be able to ask a question that most people would never want to ask. No one wants to you know, truly give their friends an option to pick up and leave. They'd rather them just do it. They'd rather them just not tell them. But he was ready to say, you guys done too. Go on. This is my purpose. I'm heading down this road. And you're not going to change much about that. 
It's a predictable behavior. When everything turned against the way that it looked like it was supposed to go, he was still moving forward. That's commitment. When, you know, the hopeful vision that we had at the beginning of starting something is gone, loses its luster, are we still moving forward with that purpose? Because it's going to happen. In almost every area of our life, it's going to happen. We're going to have weeks or days or maybe even months where the, the, the future does not look so hopeful. In whatever area we're going, uh, uh, going down, whatever path we're going down. And this particularly happens with Christianity on some consistent basis in our faith. And so, uh, what behaviors for us are really predictable? Jesus would say, I do exactly what the Father wants me to do. You've got to understand that. The second one is responsibility. So, predictability and responsibility. In my mind, these are the two aspects of commitment. When I'm looking for a leader to lead an army ministry, I'm asking myself, is this person's behavior somewhat predictable? As an unpredictable person myself, by nature, <laughs> this is a very challenging thing for me, okay? So I'm in no way trying to, you know, say, well, I've per- perfectly perfected predictability. Wow, that was pretty sentence, right? Um, I can be incredibly unpredictable. Uh, I won't go into my own problems and issues right now, but uh, for those of you who know me, you can verify that. And that's a constant struggle in my life in terms of commitment. Second one is responsibility. Someone who's committed is predictable in their behavior and they are responsible. It's a that's my job mentality. That's my job mentality. Ask yourself this question where this fits into your life. Where do you, without question, default in that's my job mentality? Because you don't got nothing. You're not committed to much. You don't got nothing. Don't have anything. Not negative. Yes. I thought you were going to be positive. I know, I know, sorry. More people should have heard that. That was a good joke. You know, she got more credit for that, but you didn't. But it'll be here in the recording. People be laughing in the car, you know. Um, so, in what areas of your life, okay, do you have a that's my job mentality? Guys, if you look at these two questions alone, Where do I have a that's my job mentality? Okay? And where is my behavior predictable? You will see what you are committed to. Don't buy into the lie that what you say you're committed to is what you're committed to. Because it's not true. We have this wonderful concept in sociology called real culture and ideal culture. And the simple idea is that we have an ideal version of what we're about as a culture, and then we have a real version what we're about as a culture. We express the ideal version because it makes us feel good. It requires no effort. We look into the future and say, that's what I'm going to be. The problem is, the real version is where you've been already. And that's what really commitment is about. It's looking back, retrospectively, asking the question, what have I been committed to? And in Christianity, we have a real issue sometimes when we allow our thoughts and our ideas and our morals and all these things that stay in our brain... To translate into behavior. Thinking that somehow because we believe this, we intend to do this, we uh, you know, fully understand it, that somehow that's behavior and we're doing a good job. And the Spirit wants to say, oh, that's good. That's a great first step. A great baby step in the right direction of actually applying those things into your world. Of truly being committed to the things that you tell everyone around you that you're committed to. And so, we've got to have a that's my job mentality. 
think that's what commitment is about. And this is important. And it ultimately and fundamentally goes back to the character of God. And that's what's so important about it. Is that our God is predictable in the way that He works in the world. If He wasn't, we would be in a world of trouble. If we couldn't truly understand how God works in ways that are predictable and make sense and understand His character. And I'm not talking about... There's the specifics, because sure, God is mysterious and He does a lot of things, but I'm talking about the core principles of His character and who He is. He's just predictable. He's committed to us. That's what commitment means. It doesn't just mean He's sticking with us. It means that's just one aspect of many of you know, His character and what He's about. It's a predictable behavior that He's sticking with us. But He's got a lot of other commitments that He's made. It's a commitment-making God. And he's responsible. He takes a, that's my job in every aspect of our world. Every aspect. That's what's so wonderful about God. Is that he's a, that's my job, God. Okay? Everything. Even our junk. The stuff we mess up. He doesn't even leave us in that. To say, that's your job now. I was there when it was easy. I have a weird relationship with birds. Okay? <laughs> I find birds on the verge of death. Like once a year, okay? And I honestly don't know what's up. I mean, I, was, I remember the first time I was at UTD riding my bicycle, and there was a blue jay flapping around with one wing on the ground, just in a circle. It's the middle of the road. I'm like, oh my gosh, what the heck am I going to do? I can't just leave this blue jay. So I pick him up, and I've got a blue jay in my hand while I'm riding on a bike. And I'm like 18, so I'm a freshman in college, and I'm like, what do I do with this blue jay? And immediately in my mind, if you're from Plano, who do you think of? You grew up in Plano, and you have a bird that's injured. Jim Dunlap. God rest his soul. Katie, he's got the giant snake. So I look him up, figure out he's got like an, a wild species home over there in West Spring Creek, and he's got a little bird drop. And so I drive my car over and... Put this bird in the draw. Actually, there's a little bit of a funny story about me hitting it with a lunch pan, but I have a tendency to hurt birds too while I'm trying to save them. Listen, he flew up and got away. So what was I going to do? Let him fly or take the lunch pan and be like, Phew. I had no option. For his own good. Lunch, the lunch pan was there. I, I just did it. Okay. I have no idea what happened to him. I don't know if he uh, survived. I do know when he was in a shoebox at my house, other Blue Jays tried to kill him. Apparently, Blue Jays do not like injured Blue Jays. They are mean. Um, so I had to move him indoors, which my roommates were not a big fan of. Uh, okay. Second bird story, not that impressive. The third bird story just happened last night. I was on the square. I found a baby bird that was being eaten alive by ants. Okay? His eyes were closed, so he must have been like three or four days old. All right, you know, and I'm like, my dad and I are like, oh my gosh, what do I do? So my dad, I was like, I just picked them up to get the ants off of them. My dad's like, uh, I'm like, where do I put this thing? He's like, finds this little cup, so I put it in a cup, and then I put it in his cup holder, which he is not a fan of, okay? <laughs> he is not committed to animal welfare like I am. <laughs> I took him home. On my whole way home, my dad's talking to the whole time. I'm researching how to take care of birds that are like seven days old. And it's like, oh, no big deal. You just have to feed it every 15 to 20 minutes with some tweezers. Worms that you find around the yard. <laughs> or kitten food. So, okay, at that point, we all have limits to our commitment, right? 
So my idea is I'm going to feed them to my cats, okay? That's at least a better method than dying by way of ants. So I put them down, let the cats play with them. They're not that interested because it doesn't run away. So I'm like, I'm stuck with this bird. So last night at 9.30, I'm with a flashlight and tweezers, tweezing worms out of the ground and cutting them in half because apparently they have to be a certain size for the bird to eat. All right? This is my night last night. Trying to take care of this stupid bird. All right? I will gladly tell you that bird is still alive. It is in my garage. He won't eat from my, you know, uh, little tweezer things, but he did eat bird food this morning, I think. Otherwise, other animals did. I don't know. He's in the garage with my cats. I'm still kind of, you know, seeing that route, if it'll play out. Uh, just kidding. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. I, I put him up in a cage. Okay. All I'm trying to say, guys, is that's a real good indicator of a commitment area I have. And I'm not trying to at all say that's like a spiritual... What's positive? How was that positive story? What, what do you mean? Was, oh, I saved the bird. Okay. Would you rather die by ants or cat? I'm going cat almost every day. I mean, sure, they'll play with you, but I mean, you're pretty much dead. Like You tried to kill that bird. No, I, don't, yes, I wouldn't say did. that. <laughs> Let's not go into the morals of this story. Let's just say that this is a clear example of me saving an animal, okay? <laughs> So, now that we've all gotten that completely figured out, uh, I'm not at all trying to say my obsession with animals is a spiritual commitment, but I am simply saying that the, the links that I will go through sometimes to rescue animals, I have seven at home, okay? An eighth one that's a feral cat that I think is dead. I fed him to my dog. Just kidding. <laughs> um, tells you a lot about you know, my, my sense of commitment. And I am committed to animals, okay? Partially because I think I self-medicated with animals uh, for a while in terms of my depression. But that's a whole other issue that I'm not going to go into. I, it was not amusement. It was quick death. Because I, the thought of 15 to 20 seconds, every 15, 20 minutes, I'd like for you to have a bird. In 15 to 20 minutes, you're going out and getting worms and kitty food. It's just kitty food, too. And by the way, if anyone wants to take care of a baby bird that's six days old, I will give it to you for free. Bring it up. Bring it up Okay. Here. So all of you who are judging me right now about that cat thing, here is an opportunity for you to say, that's my job mentality. We'll see. We'll see how many of you really take this to heart. When you come over to my house and take that bird from me. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, we'll see what you can do with that baby bird. Okay, so predictability and responsibility. Uh, one of the most probably controversial passages in Jesus' ministry is when a Canaanite woman comes up to him and he calls her a dog, right? And we all know that one, because that's the one where, like, if anyone mentions, we're just, like, get sweating and, like, I don't know why I'm a Christian, I don't know why I'm a Christian, this seems like a bad thing. <laughs> I actually think this is an example of Jesus showing it's a that's my job mentality. Sounds actually kind of weird, right? If you go back and, and sort of read into this story a little bit, and for those of you who don't know, remember that woman sick, right, comes to Jesus. Jesus says, you know, I'm not going to give what's sacred to the dogs. She replies, but even the dogs take the scraps off the master's table. We're thinking, what is this about? This is terrifying. Well, first of all, he doesn't actually call her a dog the way we think about it. There's two Greek words for dog, right? Uh, well, not right. I don't expect any of you to know that. Uh, I barely knew it this morning. You know. <laughs> right? You know, we all know that. 
So, there's the, the popular word for dog, which Israelites use for all Gentile people, which basically meant an unspiritual person. And it literally was a, I mean, it was an insult, right? And then there's the pet dog. That's the word that Jesus uses, sort of like a, a pet dog, okay? It doesn't make it a whole lot better, but it makes it slightly better, okay? <laughs> and I think in part what he was doing in this story is trying to convince all those Israelites around him who believed that she was that worst kind of dog that, hey, this is a my job kind of deal. He goes on to tell her that he's surprised by her faith. One of the biggest compliments in Scripture goes to this Gentile woman who was able to humble herself before God. Now, there was a lot of other things going on there. The Canaanites, you know, the Gentile people didn't really think highly of the Jews, and so they didn't really think about their magic and spirituality, and so partly Jesus is testing whether she really believes or whether she's just coming from a quick fix and a quick miracle, and there's some other things there. But Jesus constantly did that in his ministry. That's my job. Think about the Samaritan woman. Over and over and over again, he took on a responsibility that not only would no one have faulted him for if he didn't do, because some of the things he did broke laws, guys. Healing a man's uh, hand on the Sabbath. Talking to a Samaritan woman at the well. That's my job. No matter what the society around me says, that's my job, I'm going to do it. He just saw himself like that. In fact, when the apostles come to him after the Samaritan woman and say, Lord, what are you doing? You haven't eaten. You need to come over here and get some food. And he says, he does that Jesus juke, right? You know, I've got food you know nothing about. And they're probably just like, oh, man, got us. You know, that never outlived that event. It's, it stung them till the end of their lives, I'm sure. That one moment where they finally realized, yeah, you know, he was right in that. I wasn't. We were wrong. Okay, the next thing is calling. Now that I have like one minute to share with you about calling. <laughs> So commitment, predictability, and responsibility. And I really do think these are important questions for you to ask yourself. Where in your life are you predictable? Compare that to Jesus. Where in your life do you live by that's my job mentality? And don't try to spiritualize these responses, guys. Just try to answer them from an objective standpoint. If you're predictably watching football every afternoon during football season, then that's a predictable behavior of yours. Guys, okay. Not every single thing in your life has to completely line up with Jesus in terms of predictability. We live in a different culture, a different time. We're going to have different things. But the core of who I am should, if I'm going to be a committed person to Jesus. Calling. Okay, calling is this even worse word in our society that means nothing. Most of us, when we think about calling, we actually think about passion. We think about job. None of those things have anything to do with calling, as the, Old, as the New Testament talks about the Literally, the word being used here is a master of the house, which is what Greek households were all about. They had a master, everybody else was below you, your wife, your kids, your servants. The dude was the master, okay? Not going to make a joke about that. We're going to continue <laughs> on. And called into his presence literally mean he called for you to come into his presence which, number one, meant everything because that was a huge honor for you to be called into the, servant, the master's presence. At any time, he could have just told other people to tell you what to do. But he chose to call you into his presence and give you this charge directly. That is calling in the scripture. And it means nothing to us because we don't live in an honor-based society where someone calls us into their presence and we think, oh, well, that's, we're really honored. Maybe like the closest thing is like a celebrity. My dad, I'm sorry, I have to out you. It's just whatever. Comes, I won't tell the first thing you did. I'll just tell the second thing you did. In the middle of me trying to fix a door, my mom's you know, car door, shows me a picture. Guess who I'm friends with on Facebook? And I'm like, oh, I guess maybe he's actually found someone in the church that he's friends with and recognized. It's Hugh Jackman. 
<laughs> he has stopped my activity to tell me, to show me a picture of Hugh Jackman, and to officially tell me he's friends with Hugh Jackman. I'm like, okay, cool. Well, that's the best example of I, I could give of maybe being called into someone's presence. My dad apparently finds honor in being friends with uh, Hugh Jackman on Facebook. X-Men. Yeah, actually, I think that's what he said. He goes, X-Men, look, X-Men, I'm friends with X-Men. Why do I come to church? Okay, so, yeah, yeah, whatever. So, um... We've got to be careful. That calling too quickly becomes blended into passions. We think that God's calling for us is our own passion. That would, that would be about as stupid as a servant going to his master and saying, Hey, here's what I've decided to do. I'm pretty excited about it. <laughs> That's how we think about calling. It's the opposite of the way the scripture talks about calling. Okay? Calling is God calling us into his kingdom giving us a charge, and I know we don't feel a lot of honor in that sometimes because we have all our own passions and preferences, but that really gets in the way sometimes of figuring out what we're doing. And it's not vocation, guys. Too many of us think that if we don't have a good job, somehow the world is out of order. Listen to me closely here. Most people who live on the face of this planet and who have ever lived have a bad job. Okay? The fact that you even have some choice in where you work should be for all of us an excitement. And I'm talking to myself just as much because I have a real bad attitude about my job most days. Not this one. I like this one. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so it's not about our vocation. If we equate calling and vocation, guys, we're doing a huge disservice and, and, and we're insulting the people who live on this planet who are not doing what they were called to do. God's calling impacts everything you do, whether you have a good job, bad job, job that fits your personality and skills, or does not. That's what's so awesome about the calling. You think servants were super excited about the fact that the master came to call him into his presence and all he really wanted was like, oh, dude, we go clean my toilet. I mean, maybe they were, I don't know. But the job wasn't the thing that made it great. It was the fact that the master had called him and told him to do that thing. And some of us really need to broaden our understanding of calling. It's the key to understanding how to really be okay with our work. And growing in our work. And letting God use us. God has changed so much about me through my hating my teaching job. I can list on and on. And it took like five years for me to finally realize some of these things. And I'm like in my tenth year. And finally you know, being blessed by uh, you know, God's long term vision here for me. But we, we've got to stop you know, equating those things. Too many of us, we find our identity in our, our vocation, in our job. And we want quick results. We want amount of money. We want, you know, a certain amount of numbers. We're impressed by those things. We find our value in them rather than in honor. And we've got to go back to, I think, uh, the Greek way of looking at this, which is to be honored by God to even be able to get to do these things. And to be able to find ways to really live out our calling regardless of the environment we're in. I am not impressed with people who are living out their calling in the exact job that they were fitted for and the exact job that they wanted all their lives. That to me is about like Jesus saying, you're loving people who've loved you. People who are really living this out in their lives are people who have terrible jobs around our world. 
most Americans probably don't even fit into this, particularly us, the bottom part of our society maybe. They're living out their calling. They've figured out how to broaden their understanding of what they're doing through the honor that they have in doing this for God. So I think one of the questions that I have here, and this one's a pretty hard question to answer, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask it still, and that's where in your life does your calling seem to be more of a whisper? In what areas of your life do you really not have a sense of what God's calling for what you're doing? It's a whisper. You just can't get to it. You can't, get, you can't quite understand why God wants you to be uh, you know, checking people out at a grocery store. You know, we've all, a lot of us have been there and we've done jobs like that. I had a terrible attitude about almost every job I had since I was 14. And, you know, it's part of living and working into those things. But where in your life is your calling still much more of a whisper than it is a calling? A calling is a clear statement of purpose. Come into my presence. Go out and do this. And, and I think we've got to get there in, in every area of our life. We've got to get to a calling. And if we can't, if we're only hearing a whisper, something that's faint, something that doesn't make sense, something that doesn't really uh, you know, broaden our understanding of the work that we're doing, then either we've got to decide that God's not interested in those areas of our life, so we'll just focus on the areas God's interested in, which is what? This? Please. Or we've got to decide to listen, open up our ears to what He's calling us to do, where we're already at. Not waiting till later when the environment gets good. Probably you're not going to be able to do it then, because then the good environment is the thing that makes you happy. And you'll find your identity in that rather than in the fact that you're doing these things uh, for God. So here's uh, my question for you. Uh, I want you to just kind of be with people around you, and when you're done, you can go and take communion. I think this would be a way better way of taking communion than we did last week, which was chaotic. So just as your group gets done, take communion. That's fine. We'll have a basket here, a basket there, maybe one in the back. Uh, Here's the question I simply want you to answer, and, and this is a confession time, guys. As a church, it's very important that we confess sin together, okay? Yeah, the the more serious stuff and personal stuff individually is the better way to do that. But I think it is incredibly important because of all of the examples we have in Scripture of the community of faith coming together and confessing sin. Okay? And so the the way that I want to do that is I want you to to simply answer the question, in what ways are you currently or have you in the the past really allowed your your preferences and your passions to lead your purpose? This could be in jobs, this could be in your church decision, it could be anything. What decisions are you currently making or have you made where you've allowed, this is my preference or this is my passion and this thing is going to usurp God's purpose in my life? The commitment we talked about today. The idea of a calling. That's a hard question, I think. And if you don't come up with anything, that's fine. You know, I think you should go and take that this next week and spend some time on it. Uh, and you're welcome to just say a prayer with each other uh, for more understanding, for the Spirit to really open your eyes to some of these areas in your own life where you're just sort of running with your preferences, running with your passions, and you're not really purposeful uh, on, in pursuit of God. Okay? Does that make sense? So you can either answer that question or uh, if you want to pray for each other, that's great. We'll take communion. We'll come back together and sing. Austin, you have a question? Oh, yeah. Oh, all the time it lines up. That's great. It's not so simple, right? Because you've got the other people who are ascetics, right? And so the idea is like, well, anything that's painful, that must be what God wants me to do. No, that's crazy talk. I'm just saying we usually default in our culture with, here's what I'd like to do, and I don't have a clear sense of what God wants me to do, so I'll run with that until he like 
turns me around. But I think there are some really better ways of going about that. Looking at those questions we talked about. What am I committed to? You know, where, where is the, that's my job mentality? And would that line up with where Jesus is? Because you can be doing inner city ministry and have really no sense of God's purpose in it. And, and what you're getting out of it is simply that you can tell people that you're doing inner city ministry, right? That stuff happens all the time, guys. You're here, and you have all these opportunities, and you're thinking in your own mind, well, it's not like really what I want to do. It's not really what I feel like every day I wake up and I'm excited to do it. So that must mean something's wrong with me. No, not at all. How good you feel about what you're doing shouldn't determine whether you're doing it. Oh, say that again. What? Say what you just said again. It was good and I want to make sure I understood it. What? Can you just like repeat it? I don't know what I said. I... <laughs> Consult the recording, okay? Anyway, so, groups, two or three or four, confess, pray for each other, move into communion, we'll come back together and, uh, and we'll spend some time uh, just singing and really worshiping God. Okay? Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.